You are listening to the Grace Covenant Church Audio Podcast. Good morning and happy Mother's Day. I'm sneaking into North Carolina. We uh, lived here about 30 years, raised our kids here. They went off to Chapel Hill. Um, my son lives in Minneapolis. Uh, you're going to see a picture of him and his wife and two girls in a minute. Uh, our daughter and her husband and grandson live in Georgia. My wife is there this weekend celebrating Mother's Day with our daughter. And so we raised our kids here. We got kind of spread out. We lived in L.A. the last 15 years. Um, I have four more years left in this role, and then I'm done. And uh, so we talked to the board about securing an apartment in L.A. because I travel a lot and getting my wife settled back in Atlanta. It was move to Atlanta or move to Minneapolis, and Minneapolis in the wintertime didn't sound like such a great retirement place. Um, so we're in Atlanta near our grandson. It's been, been a fun thing. So, uh, But I'm surprising my mom. She doesn't know I'm in town. Uh, I got in late last night. She's 88 years old. So she's going to lunch with my two brothers today, and I'm going to join them for lunch. So it's pretty exciting. She's... Um, She's a great lady, but I got to tell you this fun thing. I called her the other day, and she said, "She said, is this Jeff?" And I said, "No, mom, this is not Jeff." Uh, she said, "Oh, this is Tim, my younger brother." I said, "No, mom, this is not Tim." And she said, "Is this Jim?" I said, "Mom, do I have a brother I'm not aware of?" Um, she said, "I know who this is. This is Glenn." But all of us, you know, I'm 60, will be 62 in August, and I'm getting those moments of of lapses. We had uh, some of our best friends in the world in our home the other day. We were standing around the island. I went and got lunch. And so we grabbed hands and I said, I'll pray. And so I said, Lord, thank you for Gary. And his wife's name's Anita. And I forgot her name (laughs) in my prayer. And I looked up right at her and couldn't remember her name. And so I said, Lord, bless Gary and and his sweetheart. And and (laughs) she goes, it's Anita. <laughs> so we had a fun time with that, but life gets this way. I'm going to let you see some of my family. It's been a while since you've seen some pictures. This is Heidi, our, our oldest, Dustin, her husband. Um, Heidi moved with us to California. Dustin heard been dating in Virginia. We left no forwarding address, but he found us. And uh, this is their son, uh, Hunter, who I have a scar over the bridge of my nose from a helicopter accident this week which likely will be a a fun scar to have. This is my son, Joshua, and his uh, lovely wife, Stephanie, and their two girls, Avery and Taylor. And they're beautiful little blonde-headed Scandinavian girls, and they welcome a little brother on Thursday of this week. Now, it took me years to convince our kids to have kids. We threatened them. We asked them. Nothing worked, and I changed my will. I said, the first grandchild gets everything. So I have three and one on the way. So if you need some advice about how to, uh, how to move along the grandchildren days. I want to um, stretch you a little bit because the Lord's been stretching me. Um, I, I think the church in America is facing some of the most challenging times that it's ever faced. We are being considered by a larger and larger group of people as being irrelevant and extreme. It's uh, interesting, the the dynamics. I I picked up a book called Good Faith by uh, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. 
The subtitle is Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. In it, they write now, uh, David Kinnaman is the guy who is uh, head of Barner Research today and one of the smartest young analyst researchers I know of. But he writes some important things. He said, when one-third of college-age adults want nothing to do with religion, 59% of Christian adults drop out of church at some point in their 20s. It's new reality. It's the new reality on the ground. Culturally, it seems like a landslide victory for the other side, whoever that is. What does the future hold for people of faith when people perceive Christians as irrelevant and extreme? More than two out of five Americans today believe that when it comes to what happens in the country, people of faith, 42%, and religion, 46%, are part of the problem, rejecting that we could be part of the solution. I want to, uh, I've entitled my message today Insider Outsider because I, I think at times in the culture of the church, we repeat what I think is, a, uh, is the gravity of the way life takes us as those of us who have been on the outside. We sang a song this morning about orphans, and I thought of James's quote when he said that the purity of religion, the purity of religion is found in the ministry to widows and orphans. Why? Because these are people are, that are on the fringes of society. They have no way to help themselves. And when the church opens their doors to these two groups of people, when we open our door to orphans and when you open our door to widows, and, and I think the, the analogy is broader than that, of anybody who's on the outside getting in. See, when you're on the inside, um, it, it's easy to imagine trying to protect the, the boundaries of what it means to be on the inside. And I'm like you. I'm in on Facebook and I'm almost embarrassed at times when I read what Christians put on Facebook because I think that's not helping our witness. It's hurting our witness because somehow we're not projecting the fact that Jesus has called us to not build walls but to build bridges. Now, my um, my model is not an organization. My model has been and will always be Christ because here's a person who found himself... Um, passionate for people who found themselves on the outside. So he's standing at the, uh, at the well outside of Samaria, and he encounters a woman that's been married five times, and she's currently living with someone. Meanwhile, the disciples have made their way into town to get supplies. and So he, he talks to her about a living water. He talks to her about a solution to the shame that has that's covered her life. And time and time again, you'll see Jesus intersecting people who are on the outside and, and desperately don't know how to get on the inside until someone... Until someone opens a door, until someone gets a message of hope that somehow their life can change. So instead of Jesus judging her, instead of Jesus, even though he acknowledges her life situation, he doesn't ignore it. But, but he doesn't, I don't, I don't know how to find that place sometimes where Jesus is able to identify the reality without placing judgment on it. He's able to identify the walk in this lady's life, but without her feeling additional condemnation and and additional shame. In fact, she not only doesn't feel that, she feels an invitation to bring her life to a place of freedom. 
to a place to unshackle the, the shame and the sin. In fact, she goes back into town and she tells everybody, you've got to come meet this man. Now, what I think is funny about this story is the disciples who are part of the, they're part of the professional staff, right? They're Jesus's team. They go into town. What do they bring back? They bring back lunch. I mean, here are people traveling with the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Creator of the world, and they come back with lunch. She comes back with the whole town because she's compelled. In fact, uh, one of the gospel writers says the reason the people came out to hear Jesus was because of her testimony. I was on the outside. And he told me I could be on the inside. I was preaching in Panama City, uh, Panama, a couple weeks ago, and I'm driving to the airport, and our pastor there is a woman, and she happens to have the largest church of any denomination in the city of Panama City. She has 3,000 people in her church. She meets at Panama University. She's driving me to the airport. I think she's 63 years old, and she said, Glenn, by the way, I'm taking your sermon tomorrow to prison when I visit the prison. I said, oh, that's great. She says, no, let, let me tell you who I'm giving it to. I'm giving it to Manuel Noriega. I said, really? Now, this is the most well-known criminal in the history of Panama who was convicted of murder and the most heinous of crimes, who ended up uh, being extradited to, to the States and ended up in Florida. What I didn't know, see, for most of us, our history of of the Idi Amin's and the Manuel Noriega's and the El Chapo's are, are people who have a sordid history. And, and in a sense, we kind of hope maybe they get justice. There's a pastor in Georgia who went down to the prison in Florida every week to meet with Manuel Noriega and shared with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he had a radical conversion. He then was... Uh, extradited to France for a number of years, then extradited back to Panama, where our four-square pastor in Panama City became his pastor. His entire family has come to Jesus and are a part of her church. She said, I'm going to share your sermon with him tomorrow, and next time you're in Panama City, I want you to go to prison and meet Manuel. He would love to meet with you. And I'm thinking, how our minds get shaped to thinking in lines and boundaries and, and we paint walls and, and we build fences and, and God's trying to tear those down. Jesus came to a world that was ensconced in religious um, in a religious fortress that eventually took his life. They were so incensed by his commitment to keep pulling the outsiders in. They couldn't believe that he would go to lunch with Zacchaeus a wealthy tax collector who was pillaging their, their widows and, and poor people. And Jesus saw a different story. He saw a man who, if his perspective would change, he saw a man not as a sinner or not as someone lost. I, I love uh, the terminology, a, a young pastor of mine in Los Angeles, who says he sees all uh, non-Christians as pre-Christians. In fact, he said, Glenn, I held a Bible study in the most notorious 
gambler in Southern California. What I didn't know when I invited all these people to his house, because he, he wasn't a believer, he just was visiting our church, and, and he said, hey, if you ever want to use my house for one of those, what do you call them, Bible studies, um, you can use them. He said, so we invited everybody to his house, thought it would be a great thing, but didn't realize in the middle of his living room he had a stripper pole. And I spent my whole time uh, apologizing for inviting everybody to this house. But now he's gotten saved. He's, He's an incredible, radical Christian telling everybody about Jesus. And thankfully, he's removed the stripper pole from his living room. I mentioned the other day on Facebook that I was in Moline, Illinois, in the, in the gate area, and I looked up, and there I saw an 89-year-old man all alone. It was Hugh Hefner. And he had the Playboy uh, emblem on his pocket, and I, I put on Facebook that I saw Hugh, and I was waiting for an opportunity to speak to him, which I did get, but not very long. And I just asked people to pray for him. I got the most interesting comments, like, he's the most hideous man I could ever think of and all the stuff that he's done and I'm going I agree with all of that but he is lost and he needs Jesus I I think I remember a God who says that it's not his will that any would perish who who is the any that we think don't deserve God's mercy in the early church it was the Jews who thought the Gentiles didn't deserve God's mercy it took a revelation and, a, and an intense meeting in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Council where it said they debated and had heated arguments until James finally stood up and said, Brothers, wasn't it Amos who prophesied this was God's plan all along? Peter had just preached that Joel had prophesied that when the Holy Spirit come, he would pour out his spirit on who? The Jews? No, Joel prophesied hundreds of years before that God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. On men, on women, on children, on adults, on the free and on the slaved. But what I know about life is that we keep creating this inside movement. This inside institution where people can't find their way in. It's actually said that for for most Christians... That within a few years of their conversion, most of them have no longer unsaved friends. 93% of Christians don't share their faith. I want to share with you a verse. uh, Well, first of all, let me give you the uh, terminology of insider-outsider. I think it's an interesting one for us to at least consider. An insider, this uh, definition, a person within a group or an organization, especially someone privy to information unavailable to others, um, kind of like political insiders. Do you remember the, the movie years ago with Russell Crowe in it called Insiders? He was a, a scientist uh, within the tobacco industry, and he came forward as a whistleblower and uh, an incredible movie. But what it showed was we have to actually create laws to protect the people who will tell the truth about what's going on. We have built such strong internal controls that if somebody's going to violate that, even if it's to hold us to a point of accountability, they have to be protected. Outsider, one who is excluded from or does not belong to a group, association, or set. One who is isolated or detached from the activities or concerns of his or her own community. 
Too often we build walls instead of bridges, and you'll hear me at the end say we build fences instead of gates. In our own nation, this is the history, and so what I'm sharing with you isn't about the 21st century church. It it really is about the nature of man. The nature of man, the fallen nature of man, is that we create boundaries and barriers, and God is always trying to tear those down. In fact, in the Old Testament, God established something called the year of Jubilee, and that every 50 years, he said, you'd have to give people the money back you've taken, you'd have to return their debt, you'd have to get them out of prison, you'd have to set the slaves free, and return the property you're taking, because he said, that's what I know will happen given enough time. That's the nature of fallen men. You build walls instead of bridges, and in our own nation... It's interesting if you uh, saw the John Adams HBO uh, series. Our first Continental Congress met, and they wrote King George a letter. I love this. And they said, would you please let us have some representation in some of the decisions you're making in the, in the new world? And George, King George wrote them back, and this is what his response. Now, here is a leader given a chance to build a bridge. But this is what he said. All traitors will be shot. So they have a second Continental Congress, and they write a second letter to King George. And in this letter, it said, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary. In between the first and second Continental Congress was a chance for a leader to build a bridge, but he built a wall instead, which led to a revolution. Go to France today. Go visit Versailles and see the opulence that leaders lived in when the people were starving. Now you understand why there was a French Revolution. Because the insiders kept building bigger walls to protect the insiders and forgot the outsiders. William Tyndale, a man whose only crime was to translate the Bible into English, was castigated by a group of religious leaders who didn't want everybody to be able to read the Bible for themselves. And they burned him at the stake only because he wanted to print the Bible in English. Martin Luther has to drive 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church because the religious institution he was a part of would not answer to the, to the accountability of their own sins within the church. In America, we just voted the most popular movie last year in our Oscar count, a movie called Spotlight. After several years of investigation, the Boston Globe uncovered an insider mentality. Uh, uh, we're going to build a fortress in the archdiocese of the Boston Catholic Church where 250 priests were convicted of, of assaulting or molesting children. And in fact, what they discovered is the church actually protected the perpetrators and not the children. That is the nature of when a religious spirit permeates And loses sight of the mission. Do you get what I'm talking about? And as a church, if we don't understand this, that every day we're losing credibility because we're building fences instead of gates. We're building walls instead of bridges. And the world that is walking in darkness, I I say it like this, be the light. Don't contribute to the darkness. And sometimes the way we lead, we lead in such ways that... We build bridges that go nowhere, religious institutions that exist but have no um, future to them. I want you to see this bridge in Honduras. I was astounded when I read this story. It's a beautiful bridge. I mean, it 
it's functioning. The problem is Hurricane Mitch came through and moved the river. So now you have a beautiful bridge that goes nowhere. That's what I envision when you have a church with all of the right a religion that has all of the right components, but it's lost its sight of its mission. The angriest Jesus ever got was when he walked in the back of a synagogue and threw tables and chairs and called people names and said, you have defiled my father's house. This was to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. In fact, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, God had to deliver Israel from Egypt. But in the New Testament, God had to deliver his people from a religious spirit, not from the world's political system. In fact, Jesus was, you'd almost say he was apolitical And I'm kind of sure he would find it difficult to maybe even vote in this coming election. I don't know. But I do know this, is that Jesus is not a Republican and he's not a Democrat. I I love this thought. What's going to save America is not the donkey or the elephant, but the lamb. That's what I think. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is in The gospel. Jesus described his mission. And and if you forget everything that I say today, I just would want you to remember this one thing. If you're a follower of Christ, remember what his mission was. He stated it in the very beginning of his public ministry. He opened the scroll of Isaiah and he said these words. The spirit of the Lord has commissioned me. I can't escape this call. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now think about how many group, how many people in this description are outsiders. He's called me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's called me to give sight to the blind. He's called me to set at liberty those that are bound. He's called me to set the oppressed free. In Mark 5, you'll read where Jesus and his disciples land on the shore, and there's a man who's been demon-possessed, and and he uh, breaks uh, every chain that people, people are afraid of him. He lives in the uh, cemetery, and he approached Jesus, and Jesus commanded the demons to come out of him. And the Bible says he was dressed and seated and in his right mind, and the people around him were afraid. It's interesting. They were more comfortable in the man's bondage than they were in his deliverance. And they said to Jesus, leave us, to which Jesus did. The young man wanted to go with him, and he said, no, stay and tell your, tell your testimony. I love this story because three chapters later, oftentimes we don't see this, Jesus comes back to the same region, the ten regions of Syria. And the only difference between his visit before and his visit now is a man who's been set free has told his story. There's 4,000 people there who are saying to Jesus, stay and teach us. The principles of your kingdom. Why? Because they saw a changed life. I don't want to build a bridge that goes nowhere. It's to the church in Corinth that Paul writes these words. And and I find them astounding because he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. How could you allow sin in your church to go on to such uh, degradation that even the world wouldn't approve. It's interesting that the church was allowing something that the world would call sin. In other words, I would say it this way in two statements. Too often we love ourselves and we judge the world 
But Paul is reminding the church at Corinth that our responsibility is to judge ourselves and love the world. You see, if the law had worked, then rules would have changed people's hearts. Rules don't change people's hearts. We need rules, absolutely. Without rules, there's chaos. But but when we think that rules will govern the hearts of men, we've lost sight of the heart of God. What he understands is that when you move in grace and love, when you reach the heart of a person, not just the mind of a person, when something happens that there's a, there's a transition. Someone once said when Constantine, who was the Roman emperor, got saved in 300 A.D., that it, was, that it was the Christians who said, oh, we're in power now. In fact, someone said, they said, we don't have to love anybody anymore. We got the power. What a sad commentary on the fact that the only reason Constantine got there was because of the love of Christians who he and emperors before him had saw dying in the Roman Colosseum. In fact, you know that story well. For almost 400 years, people who followed Christ died in the Roman Colosseum. But today, when you enter the emperor's entrance in the Roman Colosseum, there's a cross over there that one emperor finally put because of this symbol that was the symbol of death became the symbol of hope. Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I think to bring a conclusion today, I just I want you to feel the impact. If you've experienced the grace of God, if you've experienced His forgiveness, if if you are gladly celebrating the fact today that you, you've walked from the darkness and the light, my challenge to you today is to realize how easy it is once you're walking in the light to forget what it was like for those who walked in the darkness, for those who need grace and need forgiveness and need someone to extend a hand to them because they don't know yet. And yet this sense that we could look at them as Jesus did, the woman uh, caught in adultery or the woman who washed his feet at the religious leader's house and she's wiping his feet with her tears. And the owner of the house who didn't bother to have Jesus' feet washed criticizes the woman and basically says she shouldn't be here. And Jesus said the reason she's doing this is because those who have been forgiven much love much. My challenge today is realizing that even in Jesus' circle, the disciples at one point didn't want someone casting out a devil in Jesus' name because they weren't part of their internal group. And Jesus spent his entire ministry helping them to see that our goal once being on the inside is to build bridges to the outside. It's not to build fortresses. It's not to build walls. It's not to build fences. I want to show you a... um, picture on my way to house in Georgia. We live at the end of a rural road. There's no way out other than this road, so I have to pass this scene. Every time I come in and every time I leave my subdivision, 700 homes at the end of this road backs up to the Etowah River and at the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in northern Georgia. It's just a beautiful, beautiful area. I watched with interest a farmer who built... um, 
These two horses, you can barely see the one on the left, used to both be in the pasture on the right. But he built an additional fence and for some reason moved the horse. I'm not sure what the reasons are. I do know a little bit about that horses tend to be herd animals. But, but what I've experienced is that every day that I drive this journey, the horse on the right is standing right there. Rain, sleet, snow, shine. It, it's as if, um, <laughs> this has been a year, as if he's waiting for a gate to be built for some kind of a reunification. And what I know is, and I'm not blaming the farmer, I'm just saying we're good at building fences. But Jesus, when he describes himself, doesn't describe himself as a wall or a fence. He describes himself as a gate and a door. He said, I am the gate. In fact, he says in, in one scripture, let me read it, uh, the King James Version, Matthew 5, 16, excuse me. John 10.9, excuse me, in the NIV. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, and they will come in and go out and find good pasture. My challenge to you today is just simply this. I think the church in America will continue to be viewed as extreme or irrelevant until we start building more bridges and start building more gates and help people who are walking in darkness find their way into the light. It, It won't... We will not advance the kingdom in the U.S. by building walls and building fences and casting stones outside. Paul said this to the church at Corinth. God can well judge the world. I've called you to love them. At the end of the day, it won't be us who will pass judgment on the world. If we'll pass judgment on the church, if we'll be tough on ourselves, if we'll hold ourselves accountable... There's often things that we've allowed within the church that the world has found reprehensible and and has cost us our testimony. But today I'm believing that there's a a new song that's going to be sung by the redeemed. There's a new message of hope that we become the light, that when people see us. I was on a plane flying to Montana, and I was sitting beside a, a guy who, who just looked like a businessman. I, I was blown away when he told me he was an alcoholic, that he lived on the streets of Sacramento, that he had lost his wife and two children, and that his parents had changed the locks on their house so he couldn't come in the door. I was just flabbergasted. Here I was, a uh, dad who had two amazing children and a wife, and I've never experienced anything close to that rejection from my family or, or those kind of harsh conditions. So I said, David, I, I want to pray with you. And, and he was, I don't know that he was receptive, but he wasn't, um, didn't push me away. I said, I'm going to be speaking at this church in the morning. I'd love for you to come by. And to my surprise, he did. He came by. There was no response. He came to me after the service and said, thank you. And then he left. Several months later, uh, I got a note from him. He said, I've been given a lot of thought to what you said. I made a decision to give my life to Christ. I've stayed in touch with him. He's grown a very successful businessman. He's quit drinking and he's won his family back. But I wonder in that brief moment of, of the opportunity to plant a seed that my words could have been construed as judgmental or 
condemning for a man who had been completely irresponsible. I think about all of the outsiders today that we might say, oh, God could never save that group like the Jews thought about the Gentiles, or or God could never send a revival to that person. I I just, I was with Rick Warren um, a couple weeks ago, and we had a chance to sit beside each other in a day-long conference, and it was just the most amazing. And, And Rick turned to me and he said, he said, have I ever told you that I love you Pentecostals? He said, I love the fact that Foursquare just got started down the street from Azusa Street. And, and gosh, your history. He said, you're taking over the world. He said, one in four Christians today are Pentecostals. You're in revival when the rest of the church and when the rest of the world is, is declining. He said, I, I want to spend more time with you. I want to know a lot more about, about what's happening in your church. It was a couple days later, uh, his... Uh, Chief staff guy contacted me and said, Rick wants to spend some time with you. And so I'm looking forward to that connection. And then I got this note right after I'd been to Panama City with Manuel Noriega. And I saw the news where El Chapo, you know, the Mexican drug lord, is reading Purpose Driven Life. And I thought, there's going to be a lot of people who read that and said, he doesn't deserve God's mercy. I don't know who does. I, I didn't. I'm not sure you did either. But here's what I know. I've been walking in grace. I've been invited into an inside group that is amazing, but I don't want to build walls. I don't want to build fences. I want to build bridges, doors, and gates. Because my mission is to take my light back into the darkness and help other people find their way into the light. Jesus, thank you for this brief time with an incredible group of people at Grace Covenant. But Lord, we're in a serious culture shift. And the church just simply can't build buildings and organizations and assume that the lost will find their way into our buildings. In fact, you never intended for the light to be under a bushel. You intended for it to be set out. And it works best in darkness. So my prayer today is that every one of us, whether we're walking through a grocery store line or or filling up our cars with gas or standing at the mailbox with a neighbor, at every place we are, we remember we're light. At a restaurant where someone's having a tough day, Lord, that you put us there just for that moment to give a word of hope. Lord, let us in our own thinking about how life should be in our own nation realize that at the end of the day, it's really not about who's in the White House. It's really about who's the Lord of our house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord in Jesus' name. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.